The sermon for today is from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I was reading an article in uh, Christianity Today this past week, and the article opened with the author uh, acknowledging, or at least noting that for many people, dropping a check or money in the offering plate at church is a lot like having a Discover credit card. And he said, both offer cashback bonus. And his point, and it went on, the article went on to talk about this idea that the blessing of God is primarily material blessing. In fact, the article quoted a few things that they found in some research. One third of Protestant churchgoers believe God will bless them if they donate money. One in four say that they have to do something for God to receive material blessings in return. Now, that's not shocking because the way we use that word blessing is oftentimes when we say, I'm blessed, or God blessed me, or God is blessing us, usually that's attached to some sort of material provision. But it raises lots of questions and a lot of confusion around what is the blessing of God? What do we mean when we say, I'm blessed? What do we mean when we say, God has blessed me? In fact, consider the story in Genesis chapter 36. It's a story about twin, brother, or twin boys born to Isaac and Rebekah. Their names were Jacob and Esau. If you look at the two lives of Jacob and Esau and you look at the material blessings in their life, it's not even a comparison. Genesis 36 talks about Esau's life and it talks about his descendants and his, his wives and his children and his, uh, and his tents and his flocks and herds and all of this. In fact, according to ancient standards, Esau was one of the wealthiest men to ever live. You say, well, what did his brother Jacob get? Well, Jacob got a tent. He never got a house. Now, he lived with his father, lived with Isaac. They wandered. They were nomads. Now, in our, in our current climate, the quick answer would be, who, who, who is blessed by God? Well, it's, it's, it's Esau, look at all his wealth. I mean, he even had a country called Edom to himself. He was incredibly wealthy. And yet the scriptures say that the favored one was Jacob. So it raises this tension. Like, what is the blessing of God? How do we get it? How do we experience it? And to answer that, we're gonna answer three questions. What is the blessing? Who does the blessing come from? And where does the blessing descend? So let's start with what, what is the blessing? The psalm opens and closes with the blessing. We start in verse one. How good and pleasant it is. That word good is the same word that's used in Genesis one to describe life that was created by God that was very good. God creates land, water, animals, trees. And after every time he creates, he said it was good. Then he creates people. He creates man. At the very end, he says, it's very good. It's God's way of saying, this is amazing. 
This is delightful. This is pleasant. And the very first people lived in this amazing paradise. The key, though, they lived in this creation that was beautiful in the presence of God. So that's how the psalm opens. It, it, it reflects back to the, to the first blessing, what it meant to, to be blessed by God, to be in his presence. Then the end of the psalm further defines it. End of verse three. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So the blessing is life forevermore. It's eternal life. Now we get pushed into the end of the story of the Bible. In Revelation, Revelation 4 and 5, that describes the blessing of God's people gathered around the throne, rejoicing in the presence of Christ, filled with joy, further filled out in Revelation 21. When, when they're gathered around the throne before God in the new heavens and the new earth, no more pain, no more crying, no more death, no more sin. And so the blessing of God, both of them, beginning and end of the Bible, are centered around God's people in his presence. That's the key. It's God's people in his presence. You say, well, what's this blessing like? It sounds good. Well, it's, it's more than good. It's amazing. Look how the psalmist describes it. What's it like to experience it? He gives two poetic images. The first is the, the image of oil. Look at verse two. It's like the precious oil on the head, right? Oil in the scriptures is symbolic for God's presence, the presence of the spirit. And it says that the, the oil, right, on the head of Aaron, right, flowing down. You know what oil is. Oil, uh, it, it, it takes the warmth of the sun, softens the skin, it's fragrant, Right, it relaxes you. That's the purpose of it. Right, it's symbolic for what the presence of God does. That when we're in the presence of God, there's peace, there's calm. Anxiety goes away because we're in the presence of the king who has everything in his control. Right? The second poetic image that describes this amazing blessing of God. Look at it. Verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What's that mean? Well, Hermon, Mount Hermon was the highest mountain in the region around Israel. And the hills of Zion were much lower. And Mount Hermon, would, in, the, in, the, in the winter, would get covered with snow. And then come springtime, it'd all melt. And guess where all that fresh, cold, clean water would go? Flow downhill, it'd flow into Jerusalem, especially in May to October when it was a very arid and dry place. And the refreshing would come from the, the water that would flow down from Hermon. And so there we see a picture of the blessing of God being this, this refreshing, this newness, new life, right? The situation you're in is not, uh, it's not forever, that God wants to make things new, right? He wants to bring refreshing into dark places, right? That that's, the, that's the blessing of God. It's in his presence, calm and warmth and peace and refreshing and newness of life. What you're currently in doesn't define you. God's about bringing newness. There's the blessing of God. You say, well, great, how do I get it? Sounds amazing. How do I get it? Who does it come from, right? That's our second question. Who, who does the blessing come from? You say, that, that is a, that's a very redundant, simplistic question, right? Of course it comes from God. Well, that's a very important question. Let me tell you why. When we talk about the blessing of God, what I just described, the, the common message of how you get the blessing goes something like this. If you work for it, if you do the right thing, if you pull the right triggers, almost like a, a puzzle, 
then you'll, you'll obtain the blessing. It, it's out there, but you have to do the right things. You got to get your life right. You got to clean up your life. You got you to do certain things. And, and if you do it, then, then God will, will give you a little treat of that blessing, right? You just got to obtain it. You got to go get it. You know, Kevin talked last week about the stinginess of God, that oftentimes we perceive God as stingy. What I just described is an angle on the stinginess of God. It says that God, God is stingy. He has blessing, but he holds on to it tight. And until you, you show him you're serious, until you show him that you, you can live a good life and make the right decisions and, qu and quit making knuckleheaded decisions and all, you know, you do the right thing, then, then he'll release just a little bit of that blessing. He'll give you a treat, right? High demand, a tiny reward, right? That, that's a version of the stinginess of God. I remember growing up, I was probably in middle school, and I remember uh, this old man at the end of our block wanted his yard mowed. And he knew I was young, and I guess he saw me mowing my yard, my dad's yard one day, mom and dad's yard, and so he asked me to do it. So my dad walked me down to his house to get the instructions on how to mow this yard. And uh, this was an immaculate yard. And we proceeded to sit there, and he gave detailed, detailed instructions about how to cut and edge his yard, down to the detail of his sprinkler heads and how tightly the edging needed to be right around the sprinkler heads. And I'm going, wow, this is going to be a laborious job. The detail here is incredible. Then he got to how much he's going to pay me. And it was hardly anything. So I, we said yes, and I started mowing his yard. After every time I mowed it, he would inspect it to see if I was deserving of this pay. And oftentimes, he would pull me back. He'd say, hey, hey, you missed this sprinkler head. There's a little bit of grass you got to cut around this sprinkler head. That's stinginess. And that's oftentimes how we look at God. Right? He's holding on to this blessing. But man, he'll eke a little bit out if you'll just clean up your act, do the right things, pull the right triggers, and he ekes it out. This psalm teaches the complete opposite. This psalm teaches what Kevin said last week, that God has been nothing but extravagant with you. Nothing but extravagant. And we see it. Look at verse three. It says, the Lord has commanded the blessing. Now, let me get back to the question, who does it come from? You see, if you understand God to be stingy, you say, yeah, ultimately the blessing's in his hands, but who does it really come from? Well, it comes from my hard work. It comes from me pulling the triggers, doing the right things. That ultimately, that's, that's where the blessing comes from. I work hard for it. This psalm teaches just the opposite, right? That God commands it. It doesn't originate with you. He sends it. He commands it. You can't achieve it. You can't earn it. You can't contrive how to get it. You can't work hard for it. He sends it. And how does he send it? Well, verses two and three describe so much oil on the head of Aaron, so much of it that it flows down his beard onto the collar of his robes, right? So much dew on Mount Hermon that it flows all the way down into the dry, arid regions of the little hills of Zion. Abundance, abundance, overflowing. But that's what the blessing of God is. There's nothing stingy about it. It flows. And not only does God command it and command it abundantly, that it comes with abundance, 
but it descends from Christ. So God commands it, but it descends from Christ. Look at the imagery in verses two and three and the repetition three times, running down, running down, falls on. Again, it's descending. It's not ascending. We're not climbing a ladder to get it. It comes down from God. And then what's the significance of Aaron, right? Why, why does the psalmist bring up the, the head of Aaron and the oil flowing down on Aaron? Well, Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. He was the first high priest of Israel. And the, and the role of the priest was to be the mediator between God and his people because sin separates God from his people. And so Aaron, the oil, remember the oil represented the dwelling of God or the presence of God? The priest's job was to bring God's people into the presence of God. But to do that, they had to deal with the sin that had separated God from his people. And so the priest, Aaron being the first, and we read this in Exodus 29, where it says that Aaron was anointed with oil, right? The presence of God to bring his people into God's presence. To do that, he had to deal with sin. How did he deal with sin? Well, Exodus 29 describes this, this graphic picture of Aaron, the high priest, putting his hands on the head of a ram. And the ram's throat would be slit and it would bleed out and it would die. And, the, and then Aaron would take this blood and he would put it on the altar right? That was the payment for sin so that God's people could be in his presence. Fast forward, Aaron, the high priest, is just pointing forward to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. The difference is Jesus didn't sacrifice an animal. He sacrificed his own life so that your sin could be dealt with, so that you could be in the presence of God. That sweet presence and blessing, the warmth, the peace, the calm, the refreshing, the newness of life that we're all looking for in a broken world. And so Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He's the one that gets the anointing of God that flows down from Jesus to his people. And the point is that the blessing comes from Jesus, descends from Jesus and nowhere else. Let me say that again. Let me be really clear about this. The blessing of God is not experienced apart from Jesus Christ that it flows from him. It does not flow from a generic God of all religions. It does not flow from your hard work. It does not flow from achievement. It flows from Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And it flows from Christ to his people. And so that begs the question then, why is this the case? Right? Why, why does the blessing of God descend down on Christ, right? through Christ to his people. And where exactly does it descend? That's the question. So we've got the definition of blessing. Who does it come from? God commands it. It flows from Christ. But then that, the next question is, if it comes from Christ, where does it descend? If we're not going to get it, where does it fall? You know, summers past, we would take our kids to summer waves up in Jekyll Island, Georgia. If you've been there, it's a little, it's a little water park, decent-sized water park. It has this little cool area where there's, um, it's a little play park, and it has this massive uh, bucket that sits up on a tower, and this bucket fills with water. And as it fills with water, the, the, the bucket starts to tip. And then finally, at some point, it gets enough water in it that it actually tips, and it dumps this monsoon of water onto the ground. And we're watching this, and there's kids standing underneath it. 
and they get the monsoon of water, they start screaming and laughing and they're just frolicking in joy. And my kids go, can we do that? I said, sure. And I still remember the first time my, my daughter uh, went up and she was trying to position herself. That's the key, right? You gotta find the right spot where all this water's gonna come down. And she stood where she thought it would be and it, and it, it filled and it dumped and she had kind of missed ground zero, right? So the, you know, she got some spray and she got some water bucket tips back up, starts filling again, and she's moving over. And she got it right there, about three feet, and she got under it. And this time, it tipped, and she was in the center of it. And she laughs, and she's, you know, frolicking with joy. It was the greatest thing ever, right? Here's where the illustration breaks down. The blessing of God is not like a bucket that tips once in a while. It's a waterfall. It's like Niagara Falls. But you have to put yourself in the place where it descends, where it falls, it's flowing. It's not, it's not hidden somewhere and you gotta go figure it out. No, it, it is flowing. But you have to put yourself in the place where it falls so you can experience it. And you say, well, where is that place? Look at verse three. For there the Lord has commanded or sent the blessing. Say, where is there? Right? What is there referring to? Look at the end of verse one. When brothers dwell in unity. That literally reads, when brothers dwell together. What that says is that this, this rich blessing of God descends on God's people dwelling together in community, not on isolated individuals. You know, that's why the New Testament over and over and over exhorts against this isolated Christianity. This Christianity that's about following Christ, but you do it by yourself. You're not in community. You're not in a church. That's not where the blessing descends. You know, I've had people ask me, they say, Keith, why do I have to go to church? Why can't I just watch it on TV? Right? Or why can't I just live stream it? In our day and age, why can't I just be a, some of us joke around, a, a box spring Baptist or a pillow Presbyterian or a couch potato charismatic? There's probably a million ways to define it. Why can't I just sit in the comfort of my home and watch a service and get filled up and be okay? Here's the reason. That's not where the blessing of God descends. The blessing of God descends on the church his people gathered together. In fact, when you look at the early church in Acts 2, right after Pentecost, what were they devoted to? The apostles' teaching, which is the word of God, breaking of bread, sacraments, prayer, and then what, what's the fourth one? The fellowship. They were committed to the fellowship. They were committed to meeting together, to being together, to dwelling together. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, don't neglect meeting together, the author says. Why? Because that's the blessing of God descends on God's people living life together, being together, interwoven together. That's the church. And that's where this waterfall of blessing falls. It's on God's people 
dwelling together. Now, why is this the case? Well, look at the imagery in, in verse two. Right, notice what it says. The oil, right? The presence of God, symbolic of it, falls on Aaron. And what's it do? It flows from Aaron's head down his beard onto the collar of his robes, onto his body, right? Aaron is a, is the great high, is a high priest pointing to our great high priest, Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one. What happens? The anointing of God, the presence of God falls on Jesus and down to his body, one body. Jesus doesn't have multiple bodies. He has one body of his church, of his people, deeply connected in his body. I'll use another metaphor. The scriptures talk about Jesus as bridegroom and we're the bride. Jesus doesn't have multiple brides. When he comes back, he's coming back to rescue his bride, the church, one bride, which means that's God's people united together in community, in unity together. Here's the second reason why the blessing of God descends on God's people dwelling together. One is just the imagery of Jesus' body, that we're one. But the second is in 1 Peter 2.9, it calls God's people, the church, a royal priesthood. That if you're in Christ, you're a priest in service to God. Which means you're, you're a priest, which means you're, you're called to, to bring the word of God to one another. Right? That there's this, this role we have as priests. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in the Nazi years of Germany. And in those years, he was leading this kind of fugitive gathering of seminarians. And he was trying to, in the midst of Nazi Germany, was trying to teach them what it meant to live together as a family of faith in Jesus Christ. What it meant to live life together. And during that time, he wrote a book called Life Together. He was actually ended up being killed by Adolf Hitler for his faith. But this book he left is just, it's wonderful. Listen to what he says. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. So what we learn here is that the, the blessing of God, it flows from God through Christ to his people but through his people, that the blessing flows from Christ, but through his people to his people, that we're called to be priests to one another. That's why the blessing falls on those who are dwelling together in unity and community. Now, why don't we do this well? I'm just gonna make the observation. We don't do this well. In general, we avoid community. Why? Because it's hard. <laughs> it is incredibly hard. Look at the most narrow community you have if you're married. Is your marriage easy? Relationships take work. Community is hard. Brothers and sisters fight. Families fight, right? That's, that's how it is. In fact, the first brothers that dwelled together in the Bible, Cain and Abel, it was a murder story. And it was a religious fight. They were arguing about who, did God love them best? 
Same argument Jesus' disciples had. Who's the greatest, right? But there's fighting. It's hard. Nothing requires, listen to this, nothing requires more attention and energy than living together in community. Nothing. It is much easier to deal with people as problems to be solved than to live with them in community. It is. It's much easier to write somebody off, is it not? A lot easier to write somebody off, right? And it's a lot easier to surround yourself with people that are just like you than to surround yourself with diverse community as the Bible describes. So what empowers you to do this? If it's so hard, where's the power to do this? Well, Psalm 133 the context of Psalm 133 answers the question, where does the power come from? What was the foundation of God's people? What was, it, what was the foundation allowing them to dwell in this sweet unity and community? Well, remember, this is a Psalm of Ascent, which means they sang this as they were making their way to Jerusalem several times a year to celebrate the festivals. And they didn't go for vacation. They went to worship God. And they came from all different regions, different regions, different tribes. They were in different walks of life. You say, oh, so their unity was, was based on them being a, a li like each other. No, not at all. They were very different. But when they got to the temple in Jerusalem, what did they do? All these different people with different backgrounds, different walks of life, they gathered around the temple and worshiped God. They were in the presence of God. They had one thing in common. That's what united them. That's what their community was based on, was this one thing in common. And that is the power for a bunch of people that are different in every possible way, education level, socioeconomic status, color of skin. I could go on and on. Holding one thing in common, Jesus Christ. That is where the power to do unity and community and the heart of it comes from that we gather around one savior and we cling to one savior. And that's the only thing that we will hold in common. Everything else can be diverse and different. Alan Marsh, he heads up our campus outreach ministry at University of North Florida and Jacksonville University. And he was describing how last year he was doing a Bible study with some guys at JU. And the week before this, this time that they met to study the Bible, the week before, there had been a gun control debate on campus. And this came right after the Parkland shooting down in Stoneman Douglas High School. And when they got to this debate, they, they, were, they were asked to pick a side, right? To sit on which side you resonated with around gun control. And so two of the guys that were a week later in the study said that they sat on opposite sides. One was a Republican against gun control. One was a Democrat for gun control. One was black, one was white. A week later, they're sitting in this Bible study and they're studying Ephesians 2 on living in unity, right? And, and the difference between Jew and Gentile and the union that Christ, unity that Christ brings. And, and Alan said he looked at them and he said this, in Christ... You have more in common sitting on opposite sides of that room than you would if you were sitting on the same side of the room outside of Christ. You get that? That unity and community 
is about holding one thing in common, one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And when that happens, there's power to do the hard of living together in community and living together in relationship. Let me give you a real tangible action step coming out of this. Join a community group this fall. Join a community group. Invest in a community of people. There's nothing magical about small groups or community groups. It's the way that we try to live this out, right? Rather than one big room like this, but a small group of 10 to 12 people meeting in a home. And don't just join one and check it off the list that I go once a week, but invest yourself in that community, in those relationships. Commit to praying for one another. Commit to encouraging one another. Commit to speaking the word of God to one another because you desperately need it through text, through email, through person, through social media, whatever it may be. Commit to being transparent, to opening up your life, saying this is what I'm struggling with, that people can pray for you and walk alongside you, that you can, you build a community that has life-sustaining relationships in it. And you say, Keith, I tried it. It didn't have that. Well, then you initiate it. You get into a group and invest. You start encouraging people with the word of God. You open up and be transparent, right? Invest, become, and if you're a leader of a community group, this fall, commit to making this a community that dwells together, that does life together. Why? Because that's where the blessing of God descends. It descends on the church meeting like this in corporate worship, and the blessing of God descends on God's people meeting in smaller groups and homes. That's the rhythm we see in the book of Acts. And when you do, you're going to experience this sweet blessing of God, right? Good, pleasant life forevermore experienced now in this world. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room long for your blessing. We all are very aware of the brokenness of this world. We're aware of the brokenness of our own lives, of our upbringing, and we desperately want your blessing. And Father, we believe and confess this morning that your blessing flows like a waterfall. It's what we read in Psalm 133. It's abundant. And yet it descends on your people dwelling together. Oh, Father, if there's any here that are living isolated Christianity or trying to, to live a, a private faith with you, Jesus, apart from fellowship and community, would you, would you convict their hearts? Would you draw them to the place of longing to get involved and connected in a community of people that love you? Father, we want to be a church and a people that dwell in unity and community. We want to be a people that, that cling to one thing in common, that's you, Jesus, gathered in your presence. And when that happens, Father, would you make this a place that is welcoming to people that are coming with questions about what the faith is, who Jesus is, what Christianity is, that they would experience warmth that they would experience unity 
in our world that's divided and so politically divided in our day, would your church be a place of great unity, not because it's politically on the same side, but because it's united around the King, the King, Jesus Christ. Father, as we continue to worship now, would we sing praises to you and think about these Christians thousands of years ago, these Israelites, these followers of you that would gather in Jerusalem several times a year to sing to you. And now as we close our worship singing to you, would your blessing fall and descend and fill our hearts with the good and pleasant life forevermore that's only found in you, Jesus. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.